Welcome to Return of the King, Straight Talk About End Times. This is not a sermon series. This is a short-term class that we're offering over the course of about eight weeks here beginning in December 2015 uh, and going through at least January of 2016. Uh, We're going to look at what leads up to the return of Christ, what comes after the return of Christ, and everything in between. And so um, we're going to be trying to take this from a biblical standpoint rather than a popular culture standpoint. Some of what we talk about here may be different than what you've heard before. And so thanks for tuning in with us. If you're listening online as we're going through this course, please feel free to email me uh, through our website or at neil, N-E-I-L, at cypressstreet.org anytime with any questions you might have, and I will certainly try to get to them as we go through this course. Uh, Thanks for listening. Here we go. This week we began by discussing uh, just a couple of miscellaneous topics, the first one being the Battle of Armageddon, and we looked at Revelation 16.16, and uh, we found there that even though the uh, armies of the kings of this world were gathered for a great battle uh, by dark forces, Uh, we see that in the end, uh, it was announced that it was done, finished, and the final bowl of wrath poured out and the battle actually never took place. And so it's just kind of humorous that that uh, battle of Armageddon has gotten so much attention and yet it Look, it's you know such a small piece of the revelation, and you know it doesn't even really describe a battle taking place. They just gather on the battlefield and are destroyed. So uh, we looked at that in Revelation sixteen. I think it was verses thirteen through sixteen, and then we also talked about something called Zionism, and that is uh, the tendency that a lot of people, um, when they talk about end times, oftentimes. Israel is brought into that, especially prophecies about Israel that um, they call unfulfilled prophecies. And uh, oftentimes, people who subscribe to Zionism um, also subscribe to like a left behind sort of theology, what we've called uh, premillennial dispensationalism. And so a lot of times, if you hear those folks who talk about uh, the rapture and Antichrist and all those things that we've been Uh, kind of debunking through this series, then you also hear about, uh, well, you know, certain things happen to have have to happen to the nation of Israel before uh, Jesus will return, you know, like they need uh, to have the rest of their territory back, you know, we need to kick the Palestinians out and give them the rest of Israel, we need to um, rebuild the temple, which right now there's the big dome of the rock of the Muslims is sitting on the temple site and so that would have to be destroyed and that would be a, a you know a huge battle and everything and so there's certain things that are you know they they say well there's certain prophecies that have to be fulfilled before these things can happen and so we watched a video uh, that that discussed that theory and uh, and kind of debunked that and you know and I think after that I think we started the regular recording of the class so it should pick up after this audio from the video we watched. Very helpful, <laughs> honestly, very helpful. I'm going to right, move on with a, a question from one of our guests here this evening. How do you understand the specific scriptures concerning God's promises to the Jewish people today and also concerning the actual land of Israel? 
I take very seriously what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Um, there is an extraordinary ideology, and I call it that advisedly, which has grown up over the last 150 years, particularly since the Derbyite movement in Plymouth Brethren in the 19th century, which spread to America more powerfully than here, which saw uh, what they call dispensationalism. Not many Anglicans know about this stuff, but the dividing of history into different periods in which Jesus came but the people didn't respond so we went into a plan B but then there's still some promises waiting to be fulfilled and maybe that's the time when the Jews will return to the land and rebuild the temple and do all that stuff and that's been enormously powerful in some Christian circles particularly as I say in North America and I have to say with all humbly humility as an American friend of mine says, in my humble but accurate opinion, um, <laughs> that, 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 that actually there is no scriptural basis for that. There was an article in the New Yorker last year on one of the presidential, can one of the Republican presidential candidates talking about her particular religious background. And it said she, like other people in her context, this was um, Michelle, somebody, I forget who it was, um, believes that the Jews will return to Israel because Paul in Romans 11 says that they will. And I stared at that in the New Yorker. And I thought, you know, the New Yorker used to employ people called fact checkers um, who would actually, everything that was asserted, yes. they would go and check it out. Nobody checked that one out. There's nothing in Romans 11 about the Jews going back to their land. It is difficult. There are different cultural pressures, different problems, etc. But I see no justification whatever in the New Testament for saying that, say, the UN mandate in the late 1940s yes. was actually the fulfillment of prophecy. What I see going on... The trouble is, if you say that, it absolves you from thinking wisely or justly about everything that's happened ever since. You just say, oh, well, that was it. They had to go back. That's the fulfillment of prophecy. There we are. No, what I think we have to say is one of the biggest convulsions in the history of humankind and certainly in the history of the Jews, for whom there have been enough convulsions, goodness knows, happened in the early 1940s through the Holocaust. It was one of the, the most horrible crimes ever perpetrated, um, cold-bloodedly. I mean, let's not talk too much about it, but let's just recognize it. As a result of that, it seems to me something radical had to be done. It was done. Unfortunately, there was a lot of misinformation about just how many Palestinians there were who were going mm. to be displaced. And uh, I have friends on both sides of the Green Line yes. in the Holy Land, and Likewise. I grieve over that whole situation. But I don't think we do anyone any favours by pretending that that was a sudden, late-blossoming fulfilment of Ezekiel or Daniel or whatever. According to Paul, the entire scriptural narrative finds its yes in the Messiah. Basically, being a Christian means believing that Jesus of Nazareth was Israel's Messiah. Some people talk, some Jewish people talk, as though Jesus is the Christian Messiah. There's no such thing as a Christian Messiah ever against a Jewish Messiah. Um, either he's Israel's Messiah or he isn't. And the New Testament says he was raised from the dead, having been crucified on a charge of being Messiah, and the resurrection demonstrates he really was the Messiah. That means that Israel's history has been focused 
onto Jesus. So it, it is actually all about the centrality of Jesus. Sure. And to try to make out that there's some stuff which then has to be fulfilled irrespective of Jesus, I find deeply problematic, actually from a Christological as well, as well as from a scriptural basis. So I, I mean, I know yeah. this is hugely controversial and people get very hot under the collar yes. about it. But you, you asked me a question, no, that course. is my considered... The uh, Jewish rabbis take the scriptures seriously, the Old Testament, our Old Testament. Uh, th they know the messianic prophecies. Uh, why are they waiting for another Messiah to arrive? The messianic prophecies are interestingly complex because if you look at the Jews of the Second Temple period, in other words, the period between the return from Babylon yes. and the time of Jesus, give or take, it isn't the case that they're all sitting around saying, aha, Isaiah 53, Daniel 7, da, 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 we know exactly who the Messiah is going to be, what he's going to look like. There are some very specific things which they're expecting, namely a warrior king who will defeat the pagans, rebuild the temple and establish a rule of justice and peace in the world. That's Isaiah 11, it's Psalm 2, it's all sorts of stuff which we know was taken very seriously. Now, Jesus did not defeat the Romans, he died at their hands. Jesus did not rebuild the temple. He did something very odd which looks remarkably like an active parable of its destruction. He did not obviously, visibly and then and there manifestly establish a rule of justice and peace in the world. However, because of his resurrection, the early Christians said, oh my goodness, we have to go back to all those texts, including some that were favorites, but we're going to read differently now, and others that they never even dreamt of, but we now see were going on there as well. And we're going to say, on the basis of his resurrection, that actually he won a victory, not over Rome, but over the dark principalities and powers that stand behind Rome and use it in their fiendish ways, that he really did rebuild the temple, but it's not a temple of bricks and mortar, it's a new living temple, living stones, that he really has established a rule of justice and peace in the world, but it's not by a normal human rule, because Jesus, after all, said, we're going to do power the other way up, guys. The rulers of the nations do it this way, by bullying and harrying people. We're going to do it by service. That's what the Sermon on the Mount's all about. Yeah. Um, so that this was a Christian rereading of Scripture in the light of the resurrection of the crucified Jesus. Jewish people, and of course all the early Christians were Jews, so they were doing that, but Jewish people who didn't believe in the resurrection were reading their scriptures but weren't seeing it in the same way because if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you won't see it in quite the same way. So it isn't the case that they were just stupid and, and weren't making the obvious conclusions. However, if you talk to, um, I was going to say, user-friendly Jewish interlocutors uh, who, who are prepared to, to have this dialogue, and happily many are, It'll be very interesting to talk to them about Isaiah 53. Yes. Because in, 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 in the time of Jesus, it seems that there are broadly two interpretations of Isaiah 53 going around. One that says this is the Messiah, but that then reinterprets the suffering as something that the Messiah will inflict on his enemies, as in Psalm 2. And the other which says these people are suffering uh, like the martyrs, like the Maccabean martyrs and yes. so on. But therefore it can't be messianic. So you have a messianic uh, interpretation but non-suffering and a suffering interpretation but non-messianic. And it's only in the light of the resurrection of the crucified Jesus that people, 
oh my goodness, these two belong together and we never saw it. So you can understand why it's not as easy as, as all that. So to summarize, to summarize that, you know, basically the point that he's making is uh, that for Christians, the way, the way we go back and look at Old Testament prophecies is different than a Jewish person would. And so a Jewish person that doesn't believe Jesus was the Messiah goes back and looks at those prophecies and they say, these haven't been fulfilled for us yet. And it really bothers me when Christians go and do the same thing. Because what a Christian is supposed to do is what the apostles did, which was go back and look at the scriptures and say, hey, we obviously missed the mark on that (laughs) because uh, that didn't play out the way we thought it was, but we're going to interpret all the prophecies of God for his people in light of Jesus. Everything gets fulfilled in Jesus. The whole Jewish hope was that a Messiah would come. He did come, is what we're saying. That's what Christians say. He did come. And so everything that was promised to Israel meets its fulfillment in Jesus and his resurrection and the hope that we have in his return. And so the people of God, you know, when you read the New Testament, the people of God are no longer just Israel. It's anyone who claims Jesus. That's the people of God. And the temple of God, it's not a building anymore, is it? It's the people who, who God indwells with his Holy Spirit. And so, I mean, that's what was so powerful about, you know, in Jesus, as we're going to see prophesied about the temple's destruction. And then the temple was destroyed. And amazingly, we don't read much about that in the New Testament. And we believe that's because the New Testament was written before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, which means they're really early texts that were around when people that were eyewitnesses of Jesus were still alive. And, and so the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and that's huge for Christians, because Christians are saying, look, we don't need the temple anymore. We don't need the old system anymore. We don't need that anymore because we are the temple. And God lives in us, and we are his people. And he is fulfilling all of his promises to David, to Israel, to everybody through this person of Jesus. And so... Uh, anytime you hear someone talking about, well, this has to happen and this has to happen over in Israel and with Israel, uh uh-uh. <laughs> it's Jesus, that we're Jesus people. And, and we believe that Jesus took care of all that and, and he was God's answer for all of it. So, all right, let's talk about when. When does this happen? And we've got some scriptures to look up and uh, we're going to, the first one we're going to tackle, I guess I'll read it because this just goes on forever and we'll probably... Stop here and there and everywhere. This is, you know, there's three versions of this. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all carry uh, a version of Jesus talking about end times related stuff. But it's a little bit trickier than that, as we're going to see right off the bat here. So, 24... Starting at the very beginning, Jesus left the temple and was walking away with his disciples uh, when his disciples came up to him and called his attention to its buildings. The buildings of what? Of the temple. Do you see all these things? Jesus asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will this happen? And... 
What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So we need to note right here that the disciples, probably unbeknownst to themselves, but maybe not, just asked two questions that are different. One question was, when is the temple going to be destroyed? You said it's going to be destroyed. When is it going to be destroyed? And the other question was, when will you return? When, uh, what will be the sign of your coming in of the end of the age? All right. So they may have thought all that would happen at the same time. I don't know what they were thinking. But they asked two questions that were separate. And Jesus answered them both. But it's kind of mingled up. <laughs> it's, and so it's confusing at times, especially for us non-Jews who weren't there. But he answers, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So, it's kind of like, you know, he goes on, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are the beginning of birth pains. You know, so this, this passage, it's almost like, don't get alarmed every time a big event happens. You know, every time they go to war or an earthquake happens or whatever, you know, don't panic every time something like that happens because that's going to keep happening. And so don't be alarmed. It's not yet to come. He says that you're going to be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from, and uh, false prophets will appear, and there'll be an increase in wickedness. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, you know, he talks about that they're going to be persecuted for their faith, and they were, and we are. We, I say we as Christian, as the Christian people around the world, we are. <clears throat> and then he says, this is one of the only clear, in verse 14, one of the only clear feeling, you know, non-apocalyptic feeling statements that we have about when Christ will return. He says that the gospel must be preached to all the nations and then it will come. Then the end will come. So I don't know if he meant that generally, like you need to take the nation, I mean the gospel all around the world, you know, because at that time they're standing in Jerusalem and there's just, you know, by the by the world scope of things, just a few people even knew about Jesus and the gospel and the and the kingdom that he was preaching about. And you know, so since then you could say that it's been preached to all the nations in the sense that the gospel has traveled all around the world. And, and so, did he mean in a general sense? And therefore, his return could be any time since that has happened? Or did he mean in a, in a very specific sense that everybody, every tongue, every, you know, they all need to hear the gospel? And I don't, know, I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that there are still people groups who have not been reached with the gospel. And there are still languages that people speak that don't have the Bible in their language. And, and that's hard to, for us to believe sometimes, but there really are. And, you know, so especially certain parts of the world, I mean, there's, uh, 
You know, I think they're still finding people in the Amazon that like don't even know that there's an outside world, you know, and uh, and there's and there's people in Muslim regions for sure that speak different dialects and so forth, and and Christians have never made it to those sections of population that we know of, and so there's definitely still work to be done, and it's interesting to me that we have this statement from Jesus saying the gospel needs to reach to all people, and then the end will come, and yet such a small percentage of our... It's uh, <laughs> good. Read it for us. He, he can read it for me. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's interesting to me that such a small percentage of our missions funding as a nation, you know, at least American Christians... I don't know how it is everywhere else, but a very you know it's a pretty small percentage of our missions funding that goes to reaching unreached people groups. A lot of it is spent maintaining missions work in places where the gospel's already been taken, and uh, and that's hard because you get a root somewhere and you've got to maintain it, and that takes money to maintain it, and uh, and you know it takes money to go somewhere new too, and takes new people, and uh, but something worth praying about. Okay, um, verse 15 kind of shifts gears and this seems a lot more pertaining to the temple's destruction. It says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination which causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one go back in the field. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and never again to be equaled, uh, and so forth and so on. And, you know, that, most commentaries I've read, you know, say, say that sounds a lot like Rome and the temple thing that happened. So one of the Roman empires put uh, like a graven image in the Holy of Holies. That was an abomination, right, of desolation. That's what he calls the, um, when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination, one of the Roman empires after Jesus did that. And then another one of them, you know, they laid siege to Jerusalem and they tore the temple down into pieces. And it was a, it was a bad time to be in Israel. It would definitely have been a bad time to be pregnant all right, while this siege is going on and you're having to flee for your life and uh, refugees, all that kind of thing. So, uh, so some of this that Jesus talks about definitely deals with the temple's destruction which happened in 70 AD. But Jesus says down here, verse 23, at that time if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Christ, or there he is. Do not believe it. In other words, that all that's going to happen, and it's still not the time for my return. Uh, he goes on about that some more. And he says, After those days the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the skies, heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations and earth will mourn, and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Uh, so that passage 
is taken straight from Daniel that we read about a week or two ago with the beasts in Revelation. Uh, and there was also that part in Daniel 7 about the Son of Man, you know, coming in the clouds of glory. And Jesus is basically, you know, referencing that that was a popular passage, it seems, in his day. And saying, just using that language that they're familiar with to talk about his coming. And he also references Joel to talk about the stars falling from the sky and things like that. That's a quote from Joel, the prophet, another prophet of the Old Testament. There's a passage in here that's caused a lot of us grief with <laughs> trying to sort out the when he will return. And that's where he says in verse 34, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things happen. That word generation, part of our trouble is we, we're, not, we're not sure how to interpret the word generation, uh, the, the Greek word that was there, which Jesus didn't even, you know, he would have spoken like an Aramaic word probably. He could have spoken a Greek word. And then in our earliest manuscripts, there's a Greek word there that they try to interpret. And usually it's interpreted something like generation, but sometimes it's interpreted age. Uh, so that would read, this age will not pass away until all these things happen. And we know that the Bible often talks about ages. You know, this is the last age, so forth. And, you know, this Bible I'm holding right here, has a little note by it and says it can also be translated race. This race will not disappear. Like Jewish people. So it's hard for us to know how to interpret that correctly. And but that's a it's a head scratcher when you just read it the first time and you're like, well, they did. <laughs> you know? <laughs> They're all <laughs> that generation, they're pretty sure they're gone by now and, uh, and still know Jesus. So, uh, But just recognize one, we don't know for sure the context. He could have been, jump, you know, a lot of commentary people say, well, he's, he's talking about the temple destruction at that point. And that, again, that's one of our big problems with this chapter is the disciples asked two questions and they may have thought that all this was happening and happening at the same time. And so... All this gets reported to us in a kind of jumbled up fashion. And we're not sure when Jesus is talking about the temple and when he's talking about his return. And so, I mean, it would make a lot of sense if he was saying those things with the temple being destroyed that we were just talking about when we were at the temple. And I say, all oh, this is going to be torn down. That's going to happen before this generation passes away. And that would, so it could be that or it could be that he meant generation in a different sense. So we don't know. But either way, we know those folks are gone. They died after the temple was torn down, and we know that Jesus hadn't returned yet. So <laughs> we just sorted it out the best we can from there. And then he ends with verse, verse uh, well, this section with verse 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And just, you know, I think we're all are well aware of that by now that when people come out with a specific date, we say, are you smarter than Jesus? I don't know. <laughs> he said he didn't even know, so I just have trouble believing you know. All right. So 
we have two questions. You know, if you're filling in your blanks, when will this happen? We have two questions. Temple torn and Christ come. Two separate things that Jesus is trying to answer in Matthew 24. So if you want to write kind of a note by that, that that's referring to Matthew 24, there were two questions asked. So when you read Matthew 24, you have to consider that, that Jesus is answering two different questions. And, and it's kind of all jumbled together. So it's hard for us to sort out sometimes. We also know from what Jesus said that the gospel needs to be taken to all nations. Gospel preached to all nations. And finally, we read that not even Jesus knows. Kenny, will you read 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3? And Nick, would you mind reading 2 Peter 3, 3 through 10? Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on pregnant women. They will not escape. First of all... Hang on, hang on, hang on. We'll do one at a time. Sorry. Um, so, Paul in First Thessalonians says, you know, I don't know if they sent him a question... Or what? But he's like, look, we don't even need to write to you about times and dates and stuff. Because you know, as well as we do, that when the Lord returns, it's going to be like a thief in the night. And the point of that being that you don't know when a thief's coming. He doesn't call your house to schedule. <laughs> you know, he doesn't say, hey, is this night work for you? You're going to be out of town? <laughs> you know, he, he just shows up and you don't know. So likewise, we don't know when Jesus is going to come. He's just going to show up. And... So we need to be ready. But, so we'd say, uh, like a thief is on the next blank. And let's go ahead and read Second Peter 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, stalking and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming from us? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not, with, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be Okay, so Peter, at the time he was writing this letter to the church, said, look, we've got, we've got false teachers, we've got mockers saying, oh, where's your Jesus, where's your Jesus, why hadn't he come back yet? And he's like, look, and he quotes from Psalm 90, verse 4, and he says, for God, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like, a, I mean, it's just, time is irrelevant to God. And C.S. Lewis, I like the way the illustration he used for this. I don't know how scientifically accurate this is, but it just it helps make sense in my mind. 
And he says, God stands outside of time and space. And in the sense that, you know, picture a thread suspended in the air. And that, that thread represents all time. You know, here's creation. And here's, you know, Adam and Eve. Or here's Abraham. And here's David. And here's Jesus came. And here's, you know, us way on down here. And he's standing here, and it's as though it's all present to him. He sees it all occurring as in, you know, if you're outside of time, it's just an interesting way to think about it. I don't know how exactly accurate that is, but I thought it was interesting. And it kind of fits with what Peter's saying here of, to God, you know, it seems like a long time to us. It's not a long time to God. And, And again, he talks about it being like a thief. And he also, this is interesting, He gives a reason for the delay. He gives a reason for the delay in verse 9. And why is Jesus delaying, according to Peter? Verse 9. For your sake, so that... Doesn't it say so that something... Am I making that up? Not wanting anyone to perish. In other words, for salvation... He's delaying for salvation. He wants everyone to be saved. It's like the reason that God sent Jesus, His only begotten Son, into the world so that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but find everlasting life. That was the whole mission. And Peter's saying the reason he's delaying is so the gospel can go out. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to be saved and to come to know Him. So don't think that he's slow. He's got a purpose. Now we're not going to look at the book of Revelation to answer when. Because it provides no better answers than these. And its purpose and design was not to create a chronological timeline of events leading up to the return of Christ so that it would be a roadmap for us to say, oh, look, you know, here we come. It was a book written to the martyrs and to the people being persecuted for their faith, uh, assuring them of their place in the kingdom of heaven, assuring them that justice would ultimately take place and be served and encouraging them to continue to resist the beast of their day, which was Rome, and his mark, in other words, to remain faithful in their allegiance to Jesus and not get sold out to Rome in their pagan ways of doing things. And we talked about that uh, last week. With the, We talked a lot about the mark of the beast thing, so you may have to go listen online or I can just fill you in later. But <laughs> so... The, the follow-up, the natural follow-up question to when will this happen is what are we to do? What are we supposed to do in the meantime? And everywhere that the Bible talks about when Jesus will, turn, will return, it also talks about what we're supposed to do because that's the only reason it talks about when Jesus will return is to talk about what we're supposed to be doing in the meantime. So if we go back to Matthew 24, I'm just going to pull out some... Uh, highlight some things we'll kind of fill in our in our blanks. After Jesus did all that talking that we read about a little bit ago and said, no one knows the hour, not even me. He says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you don't expect Him. 
Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of his servants and his household to give them their food and their proper, at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. Then the master of that servant will come on a day that he does not expect, and at an hour when he is not aware, he will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where they will be weeping. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus points: be alert, he says. Be ready, he says. And perhaps most impressively. Be busy about the kingdom work that God has given us, the kingdom mission, which has taken the gospel to all the nations. So we need to be alert, be ready, and be busy doing what we're supposed to be doing. Otherwise, if we're not busy doing what we're supposed to be doing, he's going to return and find us like a lazy or wicked servant who, you know, we said, oh, Lord, Lord, but we're just kind of doing whatever we want to do and not doing what he assigned us to do when he left. So we need to be alert, we need to be ready, we need to be busy. Luke uh, 17, I'm just going to kind of give you a synopsis of that one. You can go look at it for yourself, but it talks about Lot's wife. Do you remember the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah? And the angel comes and he takes Lot and his family out before the destruction rains down on those wicked cities. And he says, don't look back. And who looks back? Lot's wife. And she's turned into a pillar of salt. And I always thought, that seems real harsh. I mean, she just wanted to see what was going on back there, right? I mean, if fire was raining down, I'd want to see that too. But I've come to realize, you know, it just really just dawned on me as I was reading and preparing for this that because Jesus spells it out, that he's because his whole point in that passage of bringing that story up is to say, don't love this life. When Jesus returns and the angels are sent out to gather all the believers to Christ, go. Go with them. Be gathered to Christ. Don't say, "Mm, but I've got all this going on right here. And I've got my life, and I love this life, and I just, can I take this picture? And can I, can I, you know, my computer is really special to me. I mean, don't love your life so much that you miss out on, you know, he's saying, if you love this life, then you're not going to have the next life, you know. So, Hold on loosely to this life. Be, will, be ready to let it go. And that's what, life's pro, what Lot's wife's problem was. Is she was, oh, my stuff. Oh, my friends. Oh, my life that I had. And God was saying, you need to leave it all behind. All the wickedness and everything else. All right. Verse Thessalonians 5, 4 to 11. I'm just going to let you guys uh, probably look up all this stuff on your own. We're just going to fill in the blanks because we're coming down to the end of it. And I have one more thing I want to give you. Uh, so in First Thessalonians 5, 4 to 11, when you look at that, you'll see that it talks about, it says to be alert again, like Jesus did. It says to be sober, which is our next blank. We did don't look back, be sober. And I don't think that only applies to your drinking habits, but just be sober in spirit. You know what I mean? Like, uh, don't be going around acting the fool. <laughs> be, uh, be serious about the tasks at hand. 
that we have that God gave us. And it says to be busy encouraging and building up each other. So encourage and build up. That's some of what we're supposed to be doing as we wait. In First Peter, when you look at that, then you'll see that he talks about holy living, living a holy life of godliness. He says to be diligent. So diligence is a blank. He talks about growing in Christ. He says grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. So, what are we supposed to do? Jesus could return at any moment. We don't know the hour any more than they did. So the same instructions apply to us that applied to them, that we should be alert, we should be ready, we should be busy with the kingdom mission, we should be encouraging each other, building each other up, we should be growing in Christ. And so that's that's the instruction for us on that. And if you came hoping for a specific date, I'm very sorry. I'm going to hand out kind of a farewell summary sort of thing. I hope this will be helpful for our last hurrah today and, and pass this around. And, uh, did, were there questions that you have that we just kind of made a personal? Oh, there's, there's a question. So on here, I just tried to kind of put down some of what we talked about. Some we've had some mind-blowing moments <laughs> through this thing. But uh, and again, if any of this you go, you look at it and you say, "I wasn't there that week. I must not have been there that week that they talked about that," or I can't remember what we said about that. You can go to. Uh, we're going to leave these classes online. And if you need help finding which which week to listen to for what you're looking for, I can help you with that. But feel free to go back and refresh at any point. Just some guidelines. You know, again, when you are dealing with things that are hard to interpret about end times, remember to use what's clearest to guide you through what's not. And to guide. That's nice. Nice for everything else. Okay. Uh, and then we've got just a quick overview. I put down teachings to avoid. Not all those things are. Uh, it's just the usually when those things are talked about, it's by a, a different breed of theology. It looks at uh, Revelation in a different sort of way. And if you look on the back, where to find end times answers. You'll find a lot of the scripture passages that we've read, and then under Revelation, there's a quote there worth reading, which again kind of explains why uh, why I said to avoid teachings of that sort. And then I, I put down three teachers. I started to put down more, but partly I ran out of room. But I, I thought that was interesting. I put their associations on there because. You know, I just thought it was interesting that they come from such a diverse background, and none of those guys are even Church of God. There's uh, Church of God theology works and stuff that 
that I've got on my bookshelf that I can hand you, but um, these are, you know, you've got United Methodist, you've got Anglican over in England. We've heard from both of those guys in these videos, and you can find them on YouTube and stuff, and um, Witherington even has a five-week study that looks at the symbols in Revelation more from what I understand. And the most interesting to me is Dr. Bob Utley. We haven't really looked at him much, uh, but that's a guy who, he was an interim for a while over here at First West, and and he's a he's written extensive commentaries that are available for free online. And what impresses me the most about him is he, I haven't seen anyone do that good of a job of put setting their denominational biases aside and say, hey, let's just look at Scripture squarely and let's be careful that we don't let you know, our doctrinal orientation affect how we interpret Scripture. And so he says a lot of things that aren't Southern Baptist things to say and, and he's not afraid of saying it if, it if he feels like it contradicts Scripture. And so this is one of those areas where, uh, you know, he... He shares on, I was just really impressed and surprised that, about what he shared on End Times because I expected it to be different. But uh, he's, he's a sound guy, and we'll probably hear more from Bob Utley. He's got a whole thing on how to study and interpret scripture. We may do it on a Wednesday night sometime, but um, series. But okay. So check out his free website. And he's got like special topics that he talks about. We need to go. The choir needs to come in. So thank you all so much. You're welcome. For those of you who have been listening with us online, the handout that I just referenced will be available for download within the media player online. So hopefully you can locate that if you're interested. Thank you for coming along with us for this ride.